Hi there and welcome. If you've been reading the Front Endless Kaleidoscope on Medium, this is the 15th edition of the Front Endless Kaleidoscope. If you found out about this uh, newsletter forum podcast uh, only from the podcast, then this is episode four. Thank you for your support. I really, really appreciate it. And um, I appreciate your feedback. This week, JavaScript, lots of JavaScript news, CSS, news from Browserland, notable releases in the open source world, and tons of additional listening pleasure. So let us dive right in. In reader view, first up, reduce JavaScript payloads with tree shaking. So over on the Google uh, Web Fundamentals area, Jeremy Wagner wrote an excellent article on not only what tree shaking is, but um, explores a practical example of how to use it. Um, it it kind of ties into a, another video you'll find of Adi Osmani, a recent talk he gave at uh, O'Reilly Fluent, where they discuss the fact that like one of the things that we often forget or didn't think about is that 900 bytes of JavaScript does not equal 900 bytes of image because there's a lot more processing, compiling, and execution involved uh, in JavaScript than there is in painting pixels to the screen for an image. Also, if you send 900 bytes across the wire, that's great stuff for uh, saving bandwidth for your users. But in the end, the browser is going to decompress that and that might bloat out to like two megabytes of JavaScript. And then all of that needs to be processed. If you're on a low end device, this is going to make for a janky experience online and generally a frustrating user experience. This goes into great detail about what tree shaking is, how it can avoid those things so you don't send 900 bytes of compressed JavaScript over the wire, but only really the JavaScript you need. In the case of this article, uh, Jeremy uses Webpack, but as I mentioned last week, Parcel has added the ability to tree shake now to Parcel. So now we have two build tools, exceptional build tools, that can both help us out with getting even less across the wire. And when that payload is decompressed, it doesn't explode into this big monolith of JavaScript. A great article, definitely go check it out. So recently, or over the last couple of weeks on the web, you might've seen quite a lot of these images shared. That's just these amazing drawings that's all done with CSS. And you might've wondered, how the heck do people do that? I have to be honest, I have wondered it myself and I've really wanted to dabble in it, but I've just never gone so far and uh, and actually done it. Now I have no excuse anymore. Over on CSS Tricks, John Kantner writes the, basically the ultimate guide in getting your feet properly soaked with drawing images with CSS gradients. Highly, highly recommended. Next up, even Evan Minto wrote a great piece about pixels versus M's and do users change their base font size? For the longest time, people seem to think like, mm, yeah, I don't think, I think doing our, our, our font sizing in pixels is just fine. If people want to increase the size of the fonts, they can just zoom, you know, it's as simple as command or control plus, come on. And honestly, 
people don't change their base font, do they? So Evan Minto, uh, developer and designer at the Internet Archive, decided to test this out. Wrote some JavaScript that you can read about in this piece, uh, collected some analytics, and found that actually 3% of their audience was using a different base font size than the default of 16 pixels, which means their user experience is not necessarily that great, especially when people are sizing that up. So going to something like 20 pixels as their base font, because that means even though they bump their base font, if all your font sizes is defined as pixels, it's not going to have any effect. So she wrote, writes a great piece about why they are switching to relative font sizing, i.e. M's and REMs, and why you should consider doing it too. It's definitely uh, good for accessibility, and in the end, it can just improve the user experience. Moving on, optimizing CSS. This is always a thing, like, we want to optimize our CSS, and one of the first things people grab to is, oh, I need to make my selectors less complicated, or, I need to run un-CSS and get rid of all the unused CSS. And the second one can definitely be useful. It's not always feasible, depending on how your um, site is architected. But Ivan Keurig posted a great post on a site point where he asks the question again of, is there any, like the effort, is it warranted? Does it give you a big enough uh, impact on performance if you optimize your CSS selectors? In short, not really. Um, you're much better off spending your time sending fewer bytes down the wire, so maybe using uncSS or some other uh, method of cleaning up your CSS code base and avoiding operations that will invalidate computed style because that causes reflow. Reflow is expensive. So it's a very good article and in general, be sensible, you know, long chain selectors are generally a sign that you might want to go have a look at the structure of your HTML and rethink how that's been done. Great read. Uh, he debunks the thing about CSS selector improvements, giving you boosts in performance and actually point you in directions where you will actually get benefit. The next article is from Justin Fuller over on the Free Code Camp blog. And honestly, I am super excited about these things. The title of the article is, Here are three upcoming changes to JavaScript that you'll love. And oh boy, will you love this. So the three or four items that he discusses, he briefly discusses the third one that I'll mention now. Uh, the others he goes into great detail um, where he writes tests to see how this actually works and it's, it's a brilliant article and really cool things coming to, to JavaScript. The first one being optional chaining. Um, that, that means you can say bye to writing code such as const street name equals data, ampersand, ampersand, data dot user, ampersand, ampersand, data dot user dot address, ampersand, ampersand, data dot user dot address dot street name. Just to avoid that scenario where you get an error in the browser that says, Cannot call street name on undefined because it turns out dot address was undefined. The new syntax is so much leaner and also opens up some additional benefit in um, processing and writing our JavaScript. But 
we do need to be, he does um, point us to a warning there that, yes, this is great and you should totally use it, but beware that there is a caveat involved. So, you know, do take note of that. The remaining uh, items is knowledge coalescing, which is, or the what-what operator, which is what I'm going to call it. Um, partial application, and then last but not least, the pipeline operator. That's pretty sweet. So you might know that if you have, for example, three functions and you want to run a piece of data through these functions, one after the other, so you'll pass the data to the first one, the result of that one to the second function and the result of that to the third function and then you'll use the output. Currently that's kind of an unwieldy syntax because you're wrapping a function and a function and a function. The pipeline operator makes this a lot more explicit to write and um, when I first saw it I was kind of like yeah, this is a little weird but actually if you just look at it and especially when you read it in this article and how he uses it in the tests it is so so much cleaner to write and so much easier to read um, I can't wait for these to be available generally but in the meantime of course we have Babel to transpile and so we can start using these things today really exciting Continuing on exciting and JavaScript and the web. So JavaScript, as I've just mentioned, and that you very well know, has evolved a lot in the past. It feels like, I should say year, but I guess it's been in the last couple of years. And writing modular JavaScript has been a topic that's been often discussed and definitely recognized as a best practice. But I've also been wondering just in general, like with all the changes that happened to the language, how do we go about writing modern modular JavaScript these days? And thankfully, Adi Osmani and Matthias Bayanens comes to our rescue with an incredibly detailed post on writing and using modules on the web. So wonder no more. Next, let's have a look at a couple of notable releases in the open source world, as well as some links to further reading. Under notable releases, there's been a big release of the video.js framework, version 7.0.3. The big news was around version 7, but since then there's been a couple of uh, incremental releases. Um, I have a link to the release announcement and the release itself in the show notes which I will um, tell you about at the end of this podcast. Other releases, HTML Minifier has released version 3.5.18, fixing doctype parsing. Atom, the IDE or editor, whatever you want to call it, version 1.29.0 beta 1 has been released. So this is a pre-release. Semantic release which is just awesome. If you're not using semantic release on your open source projects, you should really look into it. It just makes releasing your uh, open source packages so much cleaner and nicer and more um, manageable and maintainable. Anyway, they've released version 15.6.3 and then over in Babel world, Babel.js version 7.0.0 beta 52 has been released. I guess this means we are getting really close to the official release of version 7. Under just the links, please. 
there's a link to meet the GitLab web IDE. This looks very, very promising. Um, and GitLab has been in the news quite a bit lately uh, after the whole um, Microsoft GitHub thing. There was an initial move from quite a lot of people over to GitLab, away from GitHub. While I think that's slowed for the most part, um, GitLab is definitely using this uh, new spotlight that's shining on them, I guess, uh, to introduce some of the great new work they're doing. And this web IDE looks really great, and it's built right into GitLab, so it creates this uh, really great flow of work. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to just playing with it and see um, how it integrates with the entire GitLab ecosystem. Next, if you have an open source project and you would like a free logo, well, there is an open source repository for that now. And you can go ahead and claim a logo and then the community can vote on whether they reckon the project should get this logo or not. And if they enough people vote up, the logo is yours. And I have to say, these are beautifully designed logos. I like the idea, general idea behind this. And I hope that this can go on after the month um, is over because this is a project run by a single designer for the month of July. And I hope that this will inspire a general movement where we can create a place where open source projects can ask for or claim um, logos donated to open source from designers. Really great idea. Love it. As mentioned earlier, there's a great talk by Adi Osmani on the real cost of JavaScript and modern web applications. It's from the recent 2018 Fluent conference. Uh, definitely a must watch. And then the Brave browser introduced a nifty new feature. I'm kind of interested in how they how they managed to do this, but um, they introduced the beta of private tabs with Tor for enhanced privacy while browsing. So this goes beyond your usual um, private browsing or your incognito mode and actually opens the new tab in Tor, but in Brave, um, which is interesting because I might be wrong, but I thought Brave was built also on the same f base that Chrome and uh, Opera and those are, so Blink and that kind of stuff. And whereas Tor, I'm sure, is built on top of Firefox. So that's quite interesting. I guess they're, they're using maybe the Tor um, protocol, not so much the browser engine itself. Anyway, it's an interesting read. It's, it's really an interesting feature. Um, uh, it makes me want to, to check out the Brave browser. Next up, Tool Chest. Only one tool to mention this week, and it's called ColorSpark. It's a free web app, web app you can access in your browser. And it's for those situations where you feel stuck for a base color or you just need some color inspiration. Or maybe you want to use a gradient, but you're not sure like which two colors really work nicely together to create a beautiful gradient. Well, ColorSpot can help you out here. And once you've found the color or the gradient you like, copy the CSS. Stick it into your project and you're ready to go. Go try it out. It's really, it's a really useful tool, I reckon. Next is Browserland. First up in Browserland is the Safari Technology Preview Release 60. 
Some of the things to highlight uh, changed CSS animations to take precedence over CSS transitions. They fixed the CSS background color style to no longer affect natively rendered text fields. So I guess if you've been relying on that uh, bug, then now they fixed the bug, so that might be problematic. They've also uh, changed CSP to apply checks before content blocker checks for network loads to match cache load behavior. Moving on, coming in on the 28th of July is the next stable release of Chrome, Chrome 68. I've had a look at what's planned for this release and there's a couple of really neat features that's going to be added to the browser. The first one is the overflow shorthand property now accepts two values. So it makes it possible for you to set overflow X and overflow Y to different values. Uh, that's also already available in Firefox and will be available in Opera when Scrum 68 is out. So far there's no signals from Edge or Safari on their um, implementation plans for this. Next one is support for X as a resolution unit. It essentially acts as a synonym for the existing DPPX dots per pixel um, that is used for high resolution displays. This is already available in Firefox and will be in Opera. And the same story with regards to Agents of Fire here. Then they're unprefixing -pre uh, CSS grab and grabbing values for cursor property. So those will now just implement the standard and no need to prefix anymore. Then lastly, improved cache management for service worker scripts, which is great news. This will also be shipped in Opera. It's already shipped in Firefox in development on Edge, but there's no signals currently from Safari. In our last section, listen up. So this is where I talk about other podcasts that I enjoy. First up, JS Party has a new episode called Wasm is Awesome. It's a great discussion with tons of more information and real world questions answered by Jay Phelps. Quoting from the show notes, Kevin Ball and Suze Hinton talk with Jay Phelps about Wasm, what it is, how to use it, and how some are already using it today. It's a great listen. If you're at all interested in Wasm, uh, go have a listen to that episode. Next up, Hansel Minutes, C++ and Browser Monoculture with Vivaldi's Patricia Ars. Vivaldi is another one of those browsers <clears> that's recently uh, come around and it, it, if you want a customizable browser that's seriously customizable to the core, you're going to want to have, have a look at the Vivaldi browser. But uh, in this talk, Patricia talks about C++, but there's a lot more about than just C++. So uh, if you're not interested in C++, there's still value in, in listening to this episode. She gives, and in particular, what I'm, what I'm uh, hinting at here is she has been involved in the browser development uh, ecosystem for quite some time on various different browsers. And she gives some really, really great info about the evolution of C++, but then also shares some really interesting bits around the history of browsers and how some of the features that we take for granted today became the features they are today. 
there's some really uh, surprises in there. Just uh, give it a listen and you'll be pleasantly surprised. Moving on, uh, over on the changelog, they had an episode with Tim Bell talking about teaching computer science without a computer. He was the founder of CS Unplugged. Um, it is an absolutely great, great project. The whole thing is open source. There's teacher um, documents. There is uh, lesson plans. There is everything. And it makes for a super engaging, super accessible way to get young people excited about and involved in engineering. And it's it's also a way where you don't need to sit in front of a screen all the time to learn these things. It's, it's very practical, it's very hands-on, and it's having tons of success um, in New Zealand where it originated, but it's branching out to other countries and in schools and being, part of, being made part of the curriculum. And I just think tools such as these uh, not only makes teaching computer science more accessible, but it makes it more engaging and fun and that's a trifecta that is sure to bear fruits. Um, it's a great episode. Tim is a, sounds like a really great person. It's an inspiring project. And if you can get involved in it in any way, even if it's just evangelizing it, I would definitely encouraging you, encourage you to do this. Uh, finally, the Web Platform Podcast has got a great episode out about JS unit testing tools and best practices. So join the host as they talk about all things unit testing. Testing is much the same in the same vein as accessibility that unfortunately it is one of those pieces of writing code that's often neglected um, to our own detriment and the detriment of our users. There are various reasons for this, of course. Some relates to the complexity of setting up a working stack for unit testing. Um, that has changed quite a bit, especially with frameworks such as Jest. Um, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. It kind of just comes no configuration, stick it in and start writing your unit tests. Um, and then there's the time factor. So when your product owner is pushing for feature X to land, more often than not, when the time it will take to implement feature X was decided upon, time to write tests was not baked into the timeline. And so it falls by the wayside. But again, uh, when we listen to this episode and listen to Dan, Leon and Amal talk about their experiences and their tips for making tests a first-class citizen, you'll realize that in the end, you can actually save a heck of a lot more time than you will lose, in air quotes, um, by not writing tests in the first place. It often just leads to better code that was better thought out and that's going to be more resilient when deployed to production. So those are all the podcast episodes that I listened to and that I think you should listen to too. And that is it then for this edition of this week. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed it, that you find something useful. You can find the show notes at bit.ly forward slash fk podcast 004. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash fk podcast 004 if you listen to this on apple podcast google podcast overcast please uh you know heart share follow share it with a friend give me some reviews uh, i really appreciate all your feedback and um, let me know what what you like what you don't like how it can be improved what you'd like to see i'm always open to suggestions 
So until the next edition, stay curious.